0: Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from Night Rider Deputy, the classic novel of the Range Wars, written by Ralph R. Perry. He learned there's no appeal from vigilante law. Matt Carney knew the score in Toltec Valley. A man needed enough land and water for his cattle or he was through. When Matt's neighbor, Big Tom Parks, began sneaking in nesters, a showdown was inevitable, especially when Parks had the law in his vest pocket. But Matt never figured that the blow off would have the savage ferocity of a maddened herd on a rampage. Nor did he expect to find himself hunted by hard cases and deputies alike. Then there were two prairie women. One loved him, one hated him. Both had reason to want him dead. This is the thundering novel of the authentic West that will grip you. It ranks with the best. In it you will meet... Matt Carney. He knew that the only language men understood in Toltec Valley was gun talk. Big Tom Parks. He was adept at getting around the law because he'd paid to drill its loopholes. Sally Flandreau. When her pa passed, she took on a man's job raising her family and running the homestead, even though she knew hot lead might be the payoff. Tex Smith. This deputy was Tom Park's top gun hand, tied to his boss by unseen ropes. Juanita Evans. This south-of-the-border fireball could give any man a burn, but her heart burned for Matt, whether he wanted it or not. Jerry Hackett. He had a special talent for gunplay, especially from the back. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from Knight Rider Deputy.
1: Already the gramma grass had green shoots sticking through the tightly curled leaves of last season's growth. Spring would be early in Arizona this year. The calves would relish the green forage. Though for older stock, nothing can beat Grandma Hay, self-cured on its own stem. Matt Carney stretched long legs cramped by the railroad seat and grinned at a mental picture of his cows drifting up the long slopes of Toltec Valley toward the summer range among the yellow pine and cedars, black patches on the bluff-colored shoulders of the hills. Cattle wintered on the flats, but in summer a cowboy rode high. He liked that. Summer was a good time. And now that the railroad had been built to Toltec, this summer would be a new time, too. The Indians were gone, but a railroad brings Grangers. Sure, as warm sun brings out the green grass. There was a Zulu coupled on behind the car he sat in. A Granger with his family and his stock and his furniture and his plows all occupying the one freight car. Zulu was the right name. Only, no real Zulu could have stood the confusion. took a Granger to put up with that. Probably this car was going on to California, but soon there would be Grangers and Toltec. They would plod out from the lines of steel like an army. Their banner was a cloud of dust which didn't move, as did the dust clouds raised by buffalo and Indians and cattlemen. Up in the hills, the cowman could spot a Granger's quarter section from ten miles away, even if he were a stranger in the country, by the pillar of dust swirling into the bright blue sky. And once plowed up, the gramma grass took years to recede itself. Texans told a story of the first Indian who had ever seen a plow in action. He had pushed the overturned sod back into place with a moccasined foot. Heap wrong side up, he declared angrily. He was a wise old Indian. The trouble was that not all white men agreed with him. Yes, this would be a new year. Matt's father had built the first cattle corral in Toltec Valley in 78 and toughed through the Apaches in the dry years. He had died two years before, leaving Matt at 23, a ranch with plenty of water for that country, and 500 she-stock. The barque wasn't the biggest outfit in the valley, but it had preempted the best water. The train was clanking to a stop at a tank. A man swung up the steps of the car. Matt, in the last seat nearest the door, saw the man was masked. He looked down a gun barrel to see it. He put up his hands, not too quickly, but fast enough. The gun barrel never wavered. This bandit knew his business. Reach y'all, he sung out, and to Matt, fork over. A second bandit swung aboard the front end of the car and came down the aisle with a hat in his left hand and a gun in his right. Wallach, gents. A Rolls with a rubber band on, he warned. He pistol-slapped the first man who handed his loose bills. After that, he got the Rolls, and he came too fast for anyone to hold out much. The bandit near Matt was covering him all the way. The whole hold-up was an expert, nervy play. Matt had to admire it. Stick your head out and I'll shoot it off, warned the man with the hat. He spoke in a croak, disguising his voice even more than the blue silk handkerchief across his lips muffled it. A careful gent, probably local too, Matt decided as they backed out. Uproar swirled in the aisle. Half a dozen men had guns out now, but they didn't exactly rush the exit. Matt stretched long legs. He didn't like me and Rob, but he wasn't going to give a good gunman a free shot on the chance of getting back $85. From the Zulu came a shot. A girl screamed. A second shot followed. But there was no second scream. Matt snatched a nickel-plated thirty-eight from the hand of a fat drummer. He rushed the door, vaulting over the rail to the tracks between the car and the blind end of the Zulu. Looking under the freight car and seeing a pair of legs wearing cowboy boots, he fired. The legs made a jump toward the rear wheels. From the shelter, the bandit fired under the car, showering Matt's face with cinders. "'Let's get!' he shouted in the croaking, muffled voice. Another pair of cowboy boots jumped to the cinders and ran. Matt emptied the thirty eight, but he was without any real hope of hitting anything. They were smart hombres. They didn't fight uselessly. He heard the bandit's horses start and crawled forward, rolling from beneath the Zulu at the door. "'They're gone!' He called, then cautiously he looked inside. Come on in, mister, it's plumb safe, a girl answered. Her voice held a bitter fury that seemed to say that nothing any man did or could do now would make the slightest difference. She sat cross-legged in the filthy litter on the floor with the head of a middle-aged man in her lap. Her right hand pressed a wad of clean white cloth against a wound low in the man's naked, dirty chest. Blood on the chest and on her fingers was already beginning to darken. The man's mouth and eyes were open, but there was no movement, either of the bearded jaw nor of his chest. The man was already dead, yet the girl pressed the compress on the wound as though by sheer will she could push life back into the body. Seconds later, Matt looked at her face. It was clean except for one smear of blood from ear to jaw. The cheekbones were high and broad, the eyes gray. Her head looked red at first, then brown. The color seemed to depend on the light. The face was strong, rather than pretty. Somehow there was something foreign about it, though her speech was pure Missouri. You skunky cowboys let pa shoot the only shot, she accused Matt without turning her head. He wouldn't stand tame to be robbed of his few poor miserable dollars. They meant his crop. Now he won't even get to plough. I'm sick of side hills, Sally Pa used to say to me. I'm a gonna turn the sod of a bottom land that's flat and rich. Sorry, ma'am. "'Matt muttered. "'He was aware now of two weedy-looking brothers standing behind her. "'Both were sandy-haired, tall, and somewhere between twenty and twenty-five. "'The girl, Sally, was the youngest, somewhere between seventeen and nineteen. "'Sorry? Yeah, I'll bet," she answered bitterly. "'One hostile, gray-eyed glance probed the truth behind Matt's store clothes "'and the ineffectual short-barreled, nickel-plated gun. "'You can bear it, I reckon, cowboy.' The killer was a cowboy, too. The chain of his left spur had one spread length about an inch from the iron. That's all I can tell you. His eyes was brown and his hair was the usual mud color. She lifted her father's head gently to the straw and stood up. Youth and softness vanished. A pioneer woman stood ready to bury her dead. Hen, you go talk with this hombre dick. You help me lay Paul out, she commanded. He got us most of Toltec and he saved us the crop cash. We ought to finish his beginnings like he'd want us to. Told Tech Valley, ma'am? Whereabouts? Matt said. We was advised to homestead near Cochise Seat. Is that good land? I ain't one to advise you, Matt said gravely. That would make you the first nesters on my range. The unavoidable hostility of that announcement at such a time was too much for Matt's natural decency. I, I sure am sorry, he added uneasily. If I could help you some way with the burial, I'd feel easier in my mind. Well, well thank you, Mr. Uh, Matt Carney, the Barquet. Meet Hen and Dick Flandreau, Mr. Carney. I'm Sally Flandreau. We hail from Pike County, Missouri. We're obliged to you, but I reckon us Flandreau's can do what's needful for our own. Behind her manner, she was a whole stubborn Missouri. Her two brothers were older, but she was the nester in this pasture. They were only her two hands. From this first day, Matt recognized that fact. The father who had died on the way toward fulfillment of his ambition had changed her purpose to a crusade cemented by blood sacrifice. Big Tom Parks was a bull of a man, tall and wide and red-faced. He was thick through the chest and thicker through the belly. The armpits of his shirt were liable to be dark with sweat when other men were dry. In that high country of keen, cool wind, the man who sweats too easily can end with pneumonia. But the very idea of illness in Tom Parks didn't mix. He was loud, and on the surface he was genial. He would buy anyone a drink on the slightest excuse. He would set up the third and the fifth round. He loved to slap people on the back or punch them jovially in the ribs with the stiff fingers of a ham-like hand. He enjoyed roaring out his remarks and following them up with a bellowing laugh that shook his big belly. His big red face would screw up until the little bright blue eyes were like the points of two steel knives sticking through a roll of raw beef. Later, you realized that his back slaps hurt, that what he said wasn't funny, and that you had parted from him half drunk, though no amount of whiskey seemed to have any effect on Parks' huge bulk. Nevertheless, though you did not like Tom Parks, you argued yourself into the belief that he was a good fellow who meant well. He was just too big and too overflowing with strength and fat and animal spirits to get along with comfortably. An elephant is huge, too. If an elephant were noisy as well, it would be even harder to realize that the beast had brains. Behind the red face and under the thatch of straw-colored hair was the real Tom Parks, to whom nothing was amusing except the simplicity and weakness of other men. This Tom Parks meant to eat up the whole of Toltec Valley. He had nothing personal against the other cattlemen of the valley. To him, the valley was a problem, in the range arithmetic of grass, water, and cattle to which he could see no solution except control by one brand, his own flying tea. The arithmetic of the western range is a grim study. To feed one cow adequately in the high, dry plateau country takes about 30 acres. The limit on which one man can legally file for a cattle claim is 640 acres and a homestead claim is only 160 acres, enough feed for three cows and a calf. Therefore, from the very beginning of the modern cattle industry in the late 1860s, a cattleman had to maintain himself somehow in a position where he lacked the full backing of the law. Do not make the mistake of thinking that the cattleman's position was entirely illegal. Some men did preempt government land and hold it with a colt, but over the West as a whole, the tenure of such men was hazardous, bloody, in short. For one thing, Colonel Colt sold weapons to everyone. For another, the law did have a power which no ambitious cattleman, however lawless he might be at heart, dared to defy. Even in the worst outbreaks, such as the Lincoln County Cattle War, both sides were careful to maintain some legal backing. The killings, for which Billy the Kid is notorious, for example, were committed while he was a sworn deputy of the law. The many killed were also deputies sworn by another legal jurisdiction. The actual struggle, as it affected the West, and as Big Tom Parks saw it would affect Toltec Valley, was between the law on the one hand, and on the other the custom of the range, which had the tacit force and sometimes more than the respect accorded to the law. Already, no open range was left unstocked. Grass was something for a cattleman to grab before his rival threw cows upon it. The result was that the land was overstocked, as everyone admitted, old Tech Valley was running about one cow to eleven acres, nearly three times as many as was ideal. A cattleman couldn't homestead land enough to buy cost too much, and to lease even for a few cents per acres per year it was both expensive and impractical. Here, the custom of the range stepped in. Graze where you like, but water at home. Though the law set no limit on the number of a man's cattle, his neighbors insisted that he must have, on land he controlled, water enough to supply them all. His cattle need not necessarily drink in his own springs or tanks, but in the district as a whole there must be water enough for all. Overgrazing might be tolerated, for a cow that is thin can still be sold, but a cow without water dies. The custom was realistic and practical, and it was enforced. Under this rule, the early settlers, like Matt Carney's father, fared best, for naturally they filed on the best springs and seeps matt with five hundred cheese stock had water enough for two thousand big tom with a ranch three times as big was up to his limit on water to grow he had to get water controlled by other cattlemen it was simple arithmetic a sum in addition furthermore the coming of the railroad and the lines of barbed wire which were stretching across the range meant the cattlemen needed fewer cowboys all the ranches were firing men who were good in the saddle and handy with a gun some of these cowboys drifted to the towns. Some were registering brands, burning it on 20 or 30 cows, and setting up his nesters. Do a little frontier arithmetic, as Big Tom did. A four-year-old steer was worth an average of $30 at the railroad siding. Grant that nester has perfect luck, that every cow calves and no calves die. The nester makes a gross of from 600 to 900 a year. After his calves grow to the shipping age of four-year-olds, a cowboy could live on that sum, but if he were a good man, would he? Or would the same arithmetic lead him into a process of subtraction from the big herds in the valley? Calves were gonna disappear. Whose? Matt's or mine? Big Tom thought to himself. Matt's paw tough through the Apache days. It's a new kind of and through, and it's me that has the savvy, not Matt. Grass. <laughs> To hell with grass. The grass will grow back. This is cattle country. You crowd the other cattlemen till they quit. You grab their water and then you wait. The Grangers will starve out and the Wild Bunch will get run off. Who will be left? You. And that was why Big Tom Parks bought drinks with roars of laughter, made remarks which were not very funny, and sent out the word which brought the Flanders to locate on Matt's seat. And farm in the best of his winter pasture.
0: We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from Knight Rider Deputy. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.